And uh, we're going to just do the first five verses. This is what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer. He is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's, Melchizedek was with no beginning and no end. It's pointing to the eternality of Jesus. And we know that Jesus is going to the cross. He's In John 16, he just gave his last teaching to his disciples about what was to come, that their trial, their, their, their faith would go under great trial. They'd have doubt. They're, they were going to be challenged in their faith and their belief of who Jesus was because Jesus was going to the cross, and he knew that that was going to be very difficult for them. And so he spent 14, 15, 16 teaching his disciples that, hey, look, I'm going away, but I am not leaving you alone. I'm giving you the ability to come before the Father's throne, as we discussed last week. It's not Jesus praying for us. It is He's allowed us entry into the Holy of Holies to be able to bring our prayers before God. He is our only mediator, praise the Lord. And he, he told and taught that to his disciples, starting in the upper room and walking towards Gethsemane, where he would ultimately be arrested. And he also gave and taught them about the Spirit of God that would come, that would one day be inside of the disciples, indwell the disciples, and praise be to God, indwell the hearts of every believer. All those who believe and receive Jesus, the Spirit of God comes in, gives them new birth, makes them born from above, gives them a heart of flesh that can, it has the ability to please God and pursue God. We're alive in Christ. We are now in Him. And the Spirit of God dwells and dwells us and desires to transform us into the image of God. And Jesus taught in John 16 how He was going to allow them to go out into the world and declare the good news the gospel, his gospel, the God knew that Jesus went to die for mankind and for sin. And that although they were going out, it would not be there under their power. It would not be under their ability to be able to convince people of their need for Jesus. It would ultimately be the working of the Holy Spirit of God that the Spirit of God would convict those, that we were just mere vessels to be used, to be filled with God the Spirit, to be filled and empowered by Him, to speak the truth of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit would then convict them of their need for Jesus. He's teaching them all these things, and John records the last teaching Jesus gives His disciples before He goes to the cross, and ending in John 16. And in John 17, we see Jesus' last prayer before he goes to the cross. But what's unique and different about this prayer is that many times in Scripture we see that Jesus is recorded as praying. But little time do we see Jesus' actual prayer. And we have his actual words, his actual prayer in John chapter 17. And it's in three distinct parts. There's verses 1 through 5 is Jesus' prayer for himself between himself and the Father. And that's the passage that we're going to focus on today. And then, and then starting in verse 6, going down to verse 19, Jesus prays for his 12 disciples, or 11 at this point. He prays for them, and we'll discuss that in the coming weeks, his prayer for his disciples. And then beginning in verse 20 through, uh, what is it, 26, we have Jesus' prayer for all believers 
for all who would believe. So we are included in this prayer. This gives me goose pimples or bumps or whatever you want to call it. Jesus prayed for us. And we get to see his heart for his bride. What a privilege it is to know from his very own words how special and unique and how, how much he loves his bride and desires what's best for his bride, his church. And so this morning we're just going to focus on the first five verses, Jesus' prayer for himself, and hopefully be able to garner some application at the end. So let's go ahead and read John 17, verses 1 through 5. And Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray. Father, we just again come to you with open arms, Lord, acknowledging our need for you. We can't become more like Christ in our own ability, in our own strength, in our own intellect, in our own emotion. It has to be your working through us, Lord, through the power of your spirit. So, God, we ask that you would work and you would move, that you'd be glorified in that. As we open up your word, Lord, teach us these things. Meet with us each individually, those here in the room, those out in the parking lot, those watching online, Lord. We all desperately need you, Father. So we cry out to you, Lord, and ask that you would do a work for your glory's sake. In the name of your Son, amen. All right, so I just want to peel back the layers of this onion, the first five verses here for us. Uh, as I was studying it this week, I was having a hard time, difficult time trying to figure out how to draw application, right? A, a sermon should always have application. We should always, uh, as we've been, te- been learning in our foundations of the faith class, we, we don't want to take a passage of Scripture and say, my interpretation is this, right? And what's your interpretation? Everybody have different interpretations. What we're trying to do is try to glean what the, what the writer was trying to write, what he's trying to communicate. And that is the correct imp- interpretation. And then we're supposed to draw application from that, from that correct interpretation into our own lives. And because Jesus is praying for himself, it was a little bit difficult, but I, I think there's a few things that we can focus on that, that can help us in our walk and, and uh, as we pursue Jesus in these passages. The first one is uh, the hour has come, right? Jesus declares in his prayer, the hour has come. He looked up to heaven. That's interesting. He prayed. He, he looked up to heaven. Right? We have a tradition here in the West where what we do, we, we close our eyes, right? Well, yeah, we bow. When I, when, we, uh, when I was a kid, we had to fold our arms like this, keep our eyes shut, and then the game was to peek without the, someone, the teacher looking at you and seeing who else was peeking, and then you smile and giggle, right? But my kids assured me that they have never done that in their lives. They're good PKs, right? They, they do everything perfect. And 
Kenneth's doing this right now. But Jesus, he looked up to heaven when he prayed. And I, I thought it was interesting when I was studying that, when we were doing the, the drive-in church out there in the trailer, I couldn't s- stop. I'm like, people must think I'm weird because I kept looking to heaven. When I was singing, I was looking to heaven. When I was praying, when I wanted to pray, I, I was looking to heaven because I had the sky. I knew what was beyond that, that veil. Here I, I just see a ceiling, so it's not as effective, right? But when I was outside, man, I, I, I wanted to just... Look towards the heaven. And so we see Jesus here looking towards the heaven. And so I guess that's our first lesson. There, there's no set way that we can pray or we need to pray. It's more about the heart issue, right? Connecting with our God. Whatever we need to do to do that, to bring ourself and our posture into a place where we can pray and connect with him and commune with him in prayer is what we need to do. All right, so that was free. All right, he looked to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And we know Jesus has already declared in previous chapters that the father would be glorified through the son going to the cross to die. It's the exact opposite of what this world would think and define as being glorified or magnified. But Jesus was going to the cross to die, not just to die, not just to be an example, but ultimately to die for our sins. And that God would be glorified in the saving of many through the proclamation of the gospel. He says, glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. We see a reciprocated glorification going on. As Jesus is being glorified through his death, the Father is being glorified because ultimately we know that is the means in which he's laid out for us to have relationship with him and eternal life. He is glorified in that. And so what does the word glorify mean when we think about it? I was kind of pondering on this and we discussed it in Sunday school this morning. Glorification, if you look up the word, it means to bring into focus, to shine, to make it bright or to shine or to bring into focus. And it brought me back to this time when we were in Canaba as the assistant pastor of a small church there. And uh, we, there was a gentleman named Frank. He was a good guy. Worked at Ace Hardware. Lovely guy. He went to our church faithfully. One of our deacons. He loved doing astronomy. He had this nice telescope where if he set it up just right, he could punch in a coordinate and it would, it, the motorized telescope would go to some far off galaxy or star cluster. And so we spent many a night looking through his telescope. And he would punch in those coordinates, but then that telescope would get it to that point where that star cluster was, but then he, in, in his desire to truly bring out the magnificence of that star cluster, would spend 30 minutes sometimes bringing that thing into focus to see all of its brilliance, all of its adoration, all of its magnificence, to see God's handiwork. He'd bring that into focus. And as I was, saw that definition for glory, to bring in the focus, I thought of Frank, but then I thought, man, that's such a great definition, how we can glorify God, how Jesus glorified God, bringing his glory into focus for the world. That is our mission, to glorify God, to bring the focus of God into this world that is drastically needy and needful of Jesus. 
our days should be spent as Jesus' days were spent here on earth to glorify him. As we glorify God, we bring him into focus, his majesty, his brilliance, his magnificence, his, his, his beautiful gospel. As we bring those things into focus, as we live for those things, God is glorified. And so the hour has come to glorify God. What else is this hour? This hour has come to pay the ransom for eternal life, right? The hour has come for him to go to the cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserve. Verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. He has brought eternal life to everyone the Father has given him. And, and so we see here, he has all authority over all flesh. God has given that in the Son of God coming to earth. He has the authority. He represents God because he is all in all God in the flesh. How many times in John have we seen Jesus demonstrate his deity and his miracles and his, his raising Lazarus from the dead and his proclamations of I am, I am the I am of the Old Testament in the flesh. John opens with in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We see Jesus having authority over all things and so that he may give eternal life to everyone the Father has given him. And we know it's been a while since we've been there in John chapter 6 that Jesus taught on this about the Father giving those to the Son as a bride in John 6 verses 37 through 40. The Word of God says this, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out Believer, what a great source of encouragement and assurance for us. If you're in Christ, if you've come to Christ for salvation, no one will be cast out. For I've come down from heaven, again, Jesus demonstrating his deity, his coming down, his, his descendants into his creation. I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those the Father has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. We will lose none. We are in the palm of his hand if we're in Christ. And he will lose none on that last day. And then in verse 40, the gospel call to, to everyone, for this is the will of my Father. You want to know God's will? that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus desires everyone who sees and believes Him, His gospel message, will have eternal life. The hour has come for Him to go to the cross to purchase that eternal life, to pay the ransom, to pay the eternal penalty once and for all, for all accounts. And then it goes on to define what eternal life is. Often, I, or not often, I've had a, a couple uh, exchanges or conversations with people that are outside the faith. And they're like, I just don't understand how spending all of eternity jumping around from cloud to cloud and playing some harp is uh, somehow satisfying, right? They're coming from that perspective. And it's sad because that's not what Scripture's, right? Far from what Scripture teaches, what eternal life is. 
Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they may know you. That's the Father. He's praying to the Father. The only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is to know God. To know him and to him to know you. To, to be adopted into his family. And that only happens through believing and receiving Christ as Savior and being born again and being adopted into God's family through believing and trusting in Jesus' accomplished work on the cross. As we do that, we are saved and we begin a relationship with God. Eternal life is a relationship. Eternal life, is, as this is pointing out, is a relationship with God. So it's an, on an individual basis. Eternal life isn't found in uh, institutionalized religion. Eternal life isn't found in the baptism. Eternal life isn't found in, in some weight box, checkbox of works or things that we have to do. Eternal life is found in knowing God. And we can know God by knowing Jesus. Jesus has made the way, as we talked about last week. He is the mediator. Jesus declared in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You want eternal life. Eternal life is to know God. To know God is to know Jesus. He's revealed himself. He's walked in his creation. He's demonstrated his deity. He went to the cross to pay your penalty. And then God promised to preserve this gospel record for all to know. That we can go to his preserved word of God and we can see Jesus in this written word and the spirit of God making this book alive in our hearts to testify to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. So that we can receive and believe him and have this eternal life. And after the salvation begins, right, we're all baby Christians at one point, whether you're seven years old or 44 years old or 70 years old, when you come to know Jesus, you're a baby Christian. You just begin this walk. But the pursuit from that point on, this life that, that is found in Jesus, it's not just, okay, I have Jesus, now I'm just going to live my life. No, it's a pursuit of knowing God. He's given us a new heart and the ability with the Spirit of God inside of us to pursue Him and to know Him more and more and more each day. It's to know Him. Barnes, Albert Barnes says this, to know Him is to have a just, practical view of Him in all His perfections as God and man and as mediator, as a prophet, a priest, a king, it is to feel our need of such a Savior, to see that we are sinners and to yield the whole soul to Him, knowing that He is a Savior fitted to our wants and that His hands, in His hands, our souls are safe. Eternal life is to know God and when we encounter Jesus in that personal relationship, when we, when we turn from doing our own thing and believe and embrace the gospel message and say, okay, Lord, save me. I see my need for being forgiven of my sins. Please save me. What, however that happens in your life, you have that personal encounter, it begins, your eternal life begins at that moment where your whole goal should be a pursuit of knowing God more and more. Solomon is, Solomon is uh, said to be the wisest man that ever walked. And he wrote Proverbs to one of his 
sons. And he says this, listen closely to wisdom and directing your heart to understanding. So he's telling them, look, this is the key to life. Listen, listen closely to wisdom. We find wisdom in God's word and directing your heart to understanding. Our heart pursuit in Jesus should be seeking Jesus. As we know Jesus, we know God. Furthermore, if you call out to insight and lift your voice to understanding, if you seek it like silver and search it for it for like hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. We are to seek it like it's a hidden treasure. I admitted last week that I watched Discovery Channel. I'm hooked on uh, their reality series called Gold Rush. These guys go up there in the Klondike. They go all over the world. They're looking for gold, right? And so I love to sit back on my comfortable couch and watch other men work. I don't know what that is all about. But but it's so funny. They'll come up. They'll, they'll come from the city. They just got laid off, and they, they're out there. They're, they're laboring like hours upon hours, right? Up there in Alaska, the sun never goes down in the summer. So they're just working and working and working, and they're just exhausted. And all of a sudden, they, they do the cleanup, you know, after they run all the dirt through the thing, and they see this little nugget like this big and you see they get so excited they're like look at this this is amazing and they call it gold fever right they caught gold fever and so they're hooked seeing that little piece of gold that's that they just got out of the dirt they're, they're, they devote their time and energy and passion into doing that they leave their families for six months at a time to find this little piece of gold Solomon says look if you're really wise you need to pursue God like you pursue the buried treasure. That Jesus is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure beyond all treasures. And him is eternal life. We find here, and going back to our text, John 17, 4, the hour has come also to complete the work given to him by the Father. He's done. He's accomplished the task God has given him. Well, almost. Right? He's ultimately going to the cross. That's the ultimate. He says, he's praying to the Father, look, the hour has come. I'm going to complete the work. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And we see that Jesus did that perfectly. He obeyed the law perfectly. That is something you and I, in spite of our best efforts, can never do. He did it for us. He obeyed the law perfectly for us. And in that, as the last Adam, he glorified God. He brought God's righteousness and holiness into focus for those who observed him in his earthly ministry. He brought God's righteousness and holiness and justice and love into focus for all those who would read the scripture and see who Jesus was and what he had done while on earth. Jesus glorified, brought the majesty of God into focus. And although we could never do it perfectly, that's his call for his church to bring God's majesty and love into focus to those around us. Verse 5, The hour has come to restore Christ to his previous glory with the Father. Right? We've seen time and time again that there's only Jesus. He is the, the monogamous, the Greek word is the, the unique one that uh, it's often translated the only begotten. He's the unique one, the only one that has come from heaven into earth. 
And he says, now, Father, I've glorified you on earth. I've done what you've asked me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. No doubt that God the Son has eternally existed with God the Father and the God the Spirit as one distinct triune God. And he's praying for himself. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with that same glory that I had before the world existed. The scriptures declare, yet for a little while he became lesser than the angels so that he may come and purchase. This is my, the little angels of scripture, now it's my, okay, so. Right? He, so he could come to earth. He, he lowered himself. He formed, stepped into the earth as a, as a servant, Philippians says. To go to the cross. He, he humbled himself to go to the cross so that he could purchase eternal life for us. But the does, story doesn't end there. Three days later, he rose from the grave. Forty days later, he ascended. Acts says that Jesus ascended into the clouds and the angel said, look, the same way that Jesus is ascending, one day he's coming back the same way. He's forever at the right hand of Bika Hebrews says, making intercession for the saints at the right hand of God, the Father. He is glorified yet again, but yet in human form. And when he returns, he will return as a human, as Jesus in his glorified body. And scriptures declare those who are alive will in an instant be changed into their glorified body and all those who had gone before will raise from the grave in their glorified state and will be in bodies that are without sin or sickness and we will see our Savior face to face so in his glorification we are glorified doesn't feel like it now I know right But this state of glorification that is promised is a promise that we hold on to. One day, all this will be shed. Our disease, our tiredness, our fear, our sorrow will be shed and we will be glorified in the eternal state because what Christ has done. So in his glorification, we await the promise of our glorification because all those who believe in Jesus are in Christ Jesus. Those same heavenly blessings are the same heavenly blessings that we have the opportunity to partake of. So what's our takeaway this morning? I've already named a couple, but the, the, the big things, take, two takeaways that I took out of these passages of Scripture. Salvation has provided us a way to also live for the glory of God. Our purpose, as Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Our life should be a means in which we draw focus and bring God's glory into focus to those around us. As we go out and we eat and we interact with the waitresses or the people to the next to the table or if we interact with our neighbors and we interact with one another. Those are all means in which we can bring God's glory and goodness into focus for those around us. Whatever we do, we should strive to bring glory to God as Jesus did. And the good news is, is we're all sitting there thinking, yeah, but we fail so much. 
at least that's what I think. That's the command, but I fail so much. I look back and go, man, I've just so many missed opportunities to glorify God instead of acting out in my own flesh and my own passion. But the beautiful part about the gospel is only Jesus perfectly glorified God. Only he could do it. And we're in Christ. And as Jesus perfectly glorified God, we do not have to fear about messing up. We can instead embrace this command to glorify God in knowing that in spite of our failures, that ultimately we are in Christ, our position is in Christ because what he has done. And so we don't have to go out and try to glorify God under fear of what's going to happen if we mess up. But we can do it because we love him and what he's done for us in saving us. And we can attempt to glorify him knowing that positionally we are in Christ. We are adopted into his family and nothing can take that away. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let me read that again. Therefore, since we have been justified by works, no, by faith, by believing and trusting in Christ's accomplished work, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our peace with God comes through Jesus' accomplished work by believing and trusting in that. We have peace with God through Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace. So this faith of believing, we obtain access into the grace, his unmerited love, his unmerited favor, in which we stand. We stand in Christ. We don't stand in our own righteousness. Praise be to God. And we boast in the hope. We boast in the hope of the coming of the glory of God. There's going to be a point when God's going to say enough is enough and all the world will indeed focus on his glory. And we stand and boast in that hope. That's in which we stand. So I don't want you to walk away saying, I need to glorify God more and more and more. Embrace the command to do it, knowing that it doesn't affect your relationship with him. But as a means and as a response, as a form of worship, God has called us to bring focus to his glory and his majesty to those around us. And we do it as a form of worship and out of adoration for what he's done for us. And as the promise of scripture dictates again and again, as we do that, as we pursue God more and more, as we pursue to glorify, we pursue our lives or live our lives in a way that we try to glorify God, the fruit of the spirit comes. We're abiding in Christ. Right? Love, joy, all those beautiful fruits or descriptions of the fruit of the Spirit begin to be evident in our life because we're living our life truly and uniquely for what God has designed us for. We're living our life in the power of Jesus. If there's anyone in this room that does not know Jesus, has not had that first step of encountering Jesus in a personal way, having that personal relationship, none of this can be yours unless you first turn and ask for Jesus forgiveness and ask Jesus to save you from your sin he has made the purchase and he's asked us he's declared that we must turn from our own ways of doing things and believe and receive him as savior and in doing so 
you will have peace with God. You will be given a new heart that can pursue God for his glory. And in that, you will find peace, joy, and contentment in this otherwise dark world. If it hasn't been that, I pray today is the day you cry out to Jesus. I'd love to be able to show you from Scripture how that can be a reality. But again, I can't save you. Only Jesus can. Cry out to him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. To demonstrate his worthiness and his love towards you. Ask him to make himself a reality in your life so that could be a reality in yours. That's our prayer for our loved ones. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to to open up your word, to see Jesus' prayer and uh, just the words that he speaks between you and he this morning, God, uh, just brings assurance to our soul, Lord, that we're, we're safe in him and salvation that is found in him alone. We see you, how your son, Lord, is, our father has uh, perfectly glorified you in his earthly ministry. And then that perfect perfection of, of salvation that he, he purchased on the cross, Lord, we, we stand here afresh and anew, born again, born from above, because what he has done for us, and we're so grateful. And our heart's prayer this morning, Lord, is that through the power of the Spirit, the enabling power of the Spirit, that we would bring glory to your name. That would bring your glory and your majesty into focus to those around us. That they may see your light. And they may see your such a great salvation that's found in your Son. We ask it in his precious and most powerful name. Amen.